beautiful words from a beautiful portion of God's Word in Job. That's, of course, Handel's arrangement of two passages, one from Job 19 and the other from the passage we'll see in a bit, 1 Corinthians. You know that Handel wrote Messiah to be sung at Easter. That's when it was sung the first time. It really isn't an Advent um, piece of music. It's actually an oratorio done to show the life and victory of Christ after the resurrection and then His exaltation. And so it's a beautiful way to lead into uh, consideration of God's Word. Please turn to Matthew 28 to begin with. That won't be the passage I spend most, most of the time focusing on. That's the fact or the history of the resurrection. I would like us to take time uh, with the portion of Scripture that addresses the meaning and significance, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its benefits to believers. So first, I will read Matthew 28, 1 through 10, and then I will move to the passage that is on the insert you have in your bulletin. You'll also be able to see the, the thought process I'm following when we get to the two sections in 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see the first part is about uh, that essential place the resurrection of Jesus has in the Christian faith. And then you'll see the second portion, what are the benefits really personally for us um, that come from the resurrection of Jesus. So hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Matthew 28. This is the story of the account, one of the four accounts of Christ's resurrection in the Bible, starting at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's on the insert. This is that great treatise of the Apostle Paul on the significance of Christ's resurrection. I will start reading at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read down to verse 27. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, is, that he raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But 
in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we gather to worship you, and part of our worship is to sit under your holy word. We ask for a a deepened appreciation for our Lord Jesus Christ and his great work of redemption made sure by his defeat of death. We have read of the fact of his resurrection. Now help us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit to see how central the resurrected Christ is to our faith into our life now, in our eternal life in the future. Please illumine your word so that we can grasp the great benefits of the resurrection to us, your children, so that we might be able to render you praise in word and deed. Also, Lord, I pray that you would open any eyes that may be blind to the truth of Christ as our trustworthy and faithworthy Savior. Amen. You have seen that our Easter text this year is 1 Corinthians 15, as I have just read. And the first half of the passage focuses on the essential nature of the resurrection of Jesus to our faith. Not just about the future in heaven, but like purpose now, mission now, like a reason for our life now. Um, It comes from the resurrection of Christ. It's not just because we're afraid of death, as a natural person would be. It's because he has answered that in Christ, but also gives us a fullness of life from the moment he borns us again. The moment you laid hold of Jesus and believed that he was sufficient to pay for your sins, you were born again. And from that point, eternal life starts. So it's not just the future, it's the now, it's all of eternal life that's bound up in the resurrected Christ. That's the central nature of the resurrection of Jesus in the Christian faith, and Paul expresses it in the first half of the passage before us. The second portion of the passage is very practical, how it personally benefits us that Jesus is raised again and living. You notice that the words from, uh, I know that my Redeemer lives, Job 19, uh, he lives. He didn't just rise again, he continues. He's a living Savior. And that was forecasted at the time of Abraham, 2,000 years before the time of Christ. 4,000 years ago, there was a forecast in the ancient believers that there would be resurrection because of the living Redeemer. Every year, I look forward to Easter, um, not because it's a new focus for us, the resurrection. That's something that's every week. It's every time we open Scripture. It's at the, the basis for everything we believe. 
but I look forward to it because there's a, a real focus on it, and we can have this essential message delivered every year. I basically would like to guarantee this is what you're going to get every year. It doesn't really matter the name of the sermon. It will always be basically the same thing, with no apologies. But this year, it's been a little bit different in preparation. Over the course of the year, it's been a different one, at least for me personally in ministry, and that definitely impacts what I might craft. Not the meaning of the word, but how it's applied. Um, in my first 20 years at Redeemer, uh, there were maybe 15 funerals of people from the church. Maybe 15. Some were connected to the church by someone uh, here. We were smaller and closer knit, and so we felt it more. But 15, maybe one a year, a little more than one a year. And there are some very difficult ones there for sure. Uh, but this last calendar year, starting in February of, nine, uh, of 2018 to this last February, there were eight members of the church um, who we had funeral services for, and then there were three, I think maybe even four, connected to members in our church. I attended all of those, so about one a month, but it was really in a three-month period that we had five of them. And for me, that was a different experience. The last three years, very different from the first 20, and I know that's how it happens. We're getting older. That's the fact of it. And praise God, these were all people who were in Christ. But two were very close to me. I spent lots of time, especially with Elder Bob Albright, um, like a, an older brother to me and a, a great spiritual father to our family since the day I got here at Redeemer. I remember celebrating his 50th, uh, his 50th birthday the first summer I was there here, some 23 years ago. And then, of course, another uh, one of our deacons, uh, all these folks that have gone to be with the Lord, we know that where they are, but we are left behind. And members come to the funeral, but the pastors generally days before spending all their time with the family because we want to, but there's a certain weight that comes upon you with that. And then the days after um, are also weighty um, because we've been preaching this truth to you for, your, for the whole of your being here. And we want you to know it's true and we want to be there for you when this shocks you with something that happens in your life and your family. Um, but for us, it becomes all the more weighty that we spend time focusing on the person of Christ and who he is and what he has done. And it drives us back to Jesus over and over again. And I become simpler as I've gotten older. Uh, you'd think that would be different with more schooling and more reading and so forth. It's actually gotten more simple for me over the years. And it really does come down to the resurrection of Christ. Our hope, our mission, our purpose, our life, our future, it all comes down to whether or not Christ was raised again. If he was not raised again, this is absolutely a huge waste of time. And I'd be the first one doing something else. And I wouldn't say follow me, because if the resurrection of Christ isn't true, there's nobody to follow. We're in a, we're in a world of hurts. And that's really the message that Paul is speaking to these new Christians at Corinth. Because Corinth was a, a church mostly of Gentile believers of Greek, Greco-Roman, philosophical background. So their view of the material was basically it was evil, you did evil stuff in the body, and the soul would be purified. And when they became Christians, that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that we are created as a body-soul nexus, perfect in its first creation, but then fallen because of sin, both body and soul. And the redemption that God provides through Christ is not just of our soul, it's our body too, but the final redemption for body is awaiting. Well, the early Christians in the Corinthian church, church had trouble understanding this. And there was a teaching that was circulating that basically said, no, there's not any resurrection of the dead. Um, that's, that's not our ultimate future. They were confused a bit. And so this prompts, of course, by the Holy Spirit, Paul to write this letter where he lays out the importance of the doctrine and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. 
So today, let's look at these two features in these two halves of this passage. The first one is about the centrality of the resurrection. The second is about the benefits that flow from it. Look with me at the passage starting at verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, because he was being proclaimed as raised from the dead by the apostles, if he's proclaimed this way, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Let's be honest that even as believers, there are those moments, especially if you lose a loved one or you're watching tragedy unfold, and you just, uh, in your humanness, you just have doubts or you wonder, you think to yourself. And so there's some connection we can make immediately with a believer under duress, especially having this thought. And so the apostle comes to share truth because that's what we need at a time like that. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, like he does, the great logician that he is, he lays out what this would mean if it was true. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, they've been preaching him as raised. They saw him raised, but if it's true that the people are saying there is no such thing, then Jesus couldn't have been raised. Well, you have to go further with that. This just shows the centrality of this doctrine. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I don't know what people do uh, when they go to churches that don't believe in the resurrection. I mean, it's totally a waste of your time. Totally. I mean, there's nothing to it. Other, I guess maybe you get together and feel good about people dressed up nice, you know, in a suburb, and look at this building we have, and all this. It's lame. It's a waste of time if Jesus isn't raised again. It's just a, a mutual affirmation, feel good, fluffy talk, a few poems, go do nice things for people. Come on, there's got to be better ways to do it than this, right? I mean, the resurrection is the very reason why we're bound together in Christ, and this gives us our purpose from the resurrected Christ commissioning us. That's the preaching that you receive. And if Jesus has not been raised, all that I've been saying right now is futile. It's empty. It's worthless. And I'm not afraid to set it up that way because that's how the Bible sets it up. It's exactly set up that way. The resurrection of Christ is the heart of Christianity. That's the preaching that the apostles were giving, that if Christ was not raised again, would have been in vain. The resurrection of Christ is the core of the Christian faith. It's the essence of what Christianity claims. It's the marrow of our spiritual life. It's the root, the seal, and the focal point of Christianity. And if Jesus has not been raised again, then our preaching is in vain. Now, we know what the preaching of the apostles was. We have it recorded in the New Testament, and you know through our study of the book of Acts how the resurrection is always given in an explanation of the gospel. The gospel, simply put, we're sinners who need salvation from God's wrath, His just wrath. So God sends His Son Jesus to take the punishment for us. He pours out His wrath upon Christ. We receive Jesus' righteousness. Now, if Jesus stays in the grave, then none of that can be confirmed. Anybody could say, well, I've done this and I've done that and I die for you. Now, obviously, he lived a life in front of everybody. We could see how miraculous it was, how perfect it was. But if he does not rise again, how can he help us with our biggest concern, meeting God in death? But he does, and that's what changes everything. But it's the anchor point, the verifying anchor point of the gospel that the apostles preached. Remember early in the book of Acts chapter 2 when Peter gives his first sermon, he said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He reminds them, they all eyewitnessed him, they saw him. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's at the core of the apostolic gospel message that Jesus was raised again. In Acts 10, when Peter is preaching to the Gentiles now, he says, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So he's drawing attention to the historical person of Christ that everybody acknowledged. Notice, nobody says, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. There was no real Jesus. I mean, nobody in the eyewitnesses there are saying this kind of thing. And it's not till centuries and centuries later that anybody says or challenges whether he really walked the earth and said the things he said. All the original audience with these old manuscripts we have giving attestation say that they saw him. We are all witnesses of what he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. So Peter, as the verifying anchor point of the gospel, brings out the resurrection of Christ that they would have known, some would have seen. Paul, speaking on his first missionary journey, gives a sermon similar to the one that Peter gave, saying, when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers has been fulfilled." See, he is able to say, if you're wondering about this, go ask some of the people who saw. That's what his declaration is in his sermon in his, mission, his missionary endeavor, the first one. For, back to our text, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's not just that they've been preaching the wrong thing. We've been believing the wrong thing. But Paul's here to say that the resurrection is not a myth. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's actual fact in history. It's interesting how smart people uh, know that this is the pivot point. Even if those smart people don't come to faith, they say so in a lot of what uh, they respond with when confronted with the resurrection. I was watching an interview not too long ago. Uh, Jordan Peterson is very popular right now because he has a lot of things that transect with, with, uh, or intersect with, with scriptural teaching, but he's not a believer. He's kind of a stoic, um, common sense kind of person, but people are enamored by his teaching. And uh, he was speaking at a Christian university, and one of the professors said to him, uh, Mr. Peterson, what do you do with the resurrection? Because he's, he, he thinks religion is just good for people to have as a comfort. It's not real, probably. It's a psychological aid. Um, but the fact of the resurrection, what do you do with it in history? And he's a smart man. He's a historian, too. I mean, he's read, and he knows. He doesn't just brush it off. He pauses very carefully and says, you know, the resurrection presents a problem for me. It presents a problem for you. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. And he says it because it's a problem that doesn't match his worldview that someone could be raised again. But he admits that there's a historical background for it. Many people acknowledge as meeting the test of evidence. And so what do I do with this? Because if it is true, he knows it's a pivot point for everything. That's how central it is to the Christian faith. The apostles speak very um, introspectively, if you see in verse 15, what have they been doing all this time if it's not real? Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's just, they're just calling themselves out. Listen, if this is not real, then we've been, we've been liars. We've been completely, uh, completely misdirecting people, misguiding people. 
Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now he's talking to people who are claiming to be believers and struggling, and so they recognize their sin. Um, this message doesn't go the same way. The people in the world who are enamored with their sin are happy with their sin. They don't know where it's leading them. They maybe don't care. But for people who are doubting the resurrection in the house of God, he's saying, recognize if you say he hasn't been raised again, this gospel you say believe cannot be right, cannot be real. You're still dead in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All those who we have mourned the loss of here on earth, but rejoice to know they're with God. Wait, hold up. Christ has not been raised, they've just, they're, they're perished. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's true, it's just being honest about the reality. If Jesus has not been raised, we are really a pitiable people for sure. No doubt. No color coding that. It's the truth. That's illustrating the centrality, the importance of the resurrection of Jesus to the Christian faith. But now we come to the benefits of Christ's resurrection in the very next verse, verse 20, one of those great adversatives in Scripture where it goes leading you one way only to set you up to tell you what's really true. So it's true. If Christ has not been raised, then we are going to perish in our sins and will be lost. But verse 20, but in fact... But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So now go back to everything we just read, and now you can modify it with the fact that he has been raised again. That's how we start to see the benefit of the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But in fact, it's a statement of historical attestation about Christ's resurrection. Paul himself met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and it utterly transformed him at the meeting time. The life of Christ is a fact in history. His resurrection is widely reported. His his actual existence is widely reported. There are many eyewitness accounts of Christ being alive after his burial. Mary saw Jesus at the tomb. Uh, Some of the disciples saw him before the whole group eventually saw him. Even large crowds of hundreds of people, not just dozens of people, but hundreds of people over the course of over a month saw him, witnessed him. Enough time for people to see and know he was alive, for that word to spread, for proof of it to spread before he ascended into heaven and sent his spirit to specially empower his disciples to be his witnesses. When Paul wrote earlier in the book of Corinthians, he says this, he was buried, he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's more people than are sitting here. Saw the risen Christ in the first century without all the distractions we have. If those, that many people saw and the main way of spreading the word was word of mouth, you can imagine how fast that spread and how rooted it was in eyewitness account. So the fact of the resurrection leads us to understand what comes from it because it's real. The benefits or the you might say, the consequences. Very first benefit we can see in the first couple words of verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, The first benefit that we should recognize from Christ's resurrection personally is that his resurrection verifies his worthiness as the sacrifice necessary for the payment of our sins. 
If he is not raised, that's a statement from God saying he's not a worthy sacrifice. But because he has been raised, God the Father is saying, I accept Jesus and his payment in your stead, in my stead. So therefore, you are in him, and I accept him. I raise him, and I take him to be with myself, and there Jesus reigns. We as his sons and daughters through adoption in Christ enjoy acceptance and forgiveness because he was raised again. You can't separate his death from his resurrection in the good news of the gospel. They come together. In fact, when Paul is writing to the Romans, he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justified means to be right with. We're made right with God through the death and the resurrection of Christ. So that first benefit that we receive is the actual forgiveness of our sins. John Calvin, in writing uh, the Institutes, said this, for how could he be dying, could he by dying have freed us from death if he himself succumbed to death? How could he have acquired victory for us if he had failed in the struggle? Therefore, we divide the substance of our salvation between Christ's death and resurrection as follows. Through his death, sin was wiped out and death extinguished. Through his resurrection, righteousness was restored and life raised up. So that thanks to this, his resurrection, his death manifested its power and its effectiveness in us. The second benefit of Christ's resurrection can be found um, at the last part of verse 20 and then following through. Follow with me. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. What this means is, think in terms of the spring when you plant um, a crop. So you plant all your seeds. <clears throat> there will be a couple seeds that pop up before the others, maybe just one. That's the first fruit. It's the first one that pops up and shows what it is and that it's starting to grow. And then we would expect now the rest of them to come forward. So Jesus is described as the first fruits from the dead, sown into the earth, if you will, by burial, but then raised again. That gives us a picture, a guarantee of our own bodily resurrection. That's the second benefit. We know for sure that our bodies will be raised again to newness of life. The first Adam died, and with us, we died too. He died spiritually, and then his body followed suit until it went to the grave. The second Adam comes and dies for our sins, and then is raised to life eternal. So now he lives on, is living, and we are in him, we find that life. And that example is Christ himself, His actual body, his glorified body, is some kind of a picture or model of what God will do with our bodies. Look at the passage, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In just a few verses kind of gives the whole plan of God about his dominion and about his glory and our part in it. He comes the first time. He dies and is raised again. He'll come another time for the final and full resurrection where we too, if we're alive, receive new bodies. If we're dead, our bodies are joined again with our souls in this glorified state like 
in some way Christ's resurrected body. This is another benefit. The second benefit, we'll notice it in the passage anyways, about or from, flowing from Christ's resurrection. Now, the third one has to do with our here and now. Um, A lot of what I said so far is a future hope, which is excellent, and future hope definitely helps compel us in our lives now. But the third point you can see in the passage, and also captured by the Heidelberg in question 45 that we read earlier, um, it has to do with our aliveness from the point we are born again. It's too often that Christians only think in terms of what comes ahead. But there is a newness of life that you have in Christ that flows from the the risen and living Christ who takes care of us, watches over us, and shepherds us in a living way from heaven. Um, He's not just sitting waiting for things to come to, to kind of take care of themselves as God planned and now he comes back. He's actively participating in the governance of all things at his Father's right hand. Your Savior is active and living. So that gives you an understanding of how Jesus is engaged with your life now. Yes, he saved you, but he's also keeping you and he's providing for you as life unfolds. He's giving you a sense of purpose. You live unto Christ. You live for his glory. Now, I'm not telling you go do something radically different from what you're doing. I'm saying whatever you're doing, see it through the lens of the risen Christ as your king, as your master. Why has he called you to whatever he's called you to? Why is he taking you through the difficulty that he's taking you through? Because let's face it, most of life is a series of catastrophes. They're difficulties. They're, they're troubles. They beset us, and we find ways to deal with them. And praise be to God, we have his grace and his spirit. We can come together and mourn those things or help one another. But make no mistake, they're not out of the hands of God that they come to us. And so he's doing something with us in this life that's honing us to be agents of his grace so we can mirror what he has done in our newness of life, even through the difficulties, and we start to have a mission or a purpose in life that is now. It's not just looking for what's to come. It's now, and it will come in fullness later, and that gives us endurance and perseverance. This is a wonderful message of resurrection. It's more than just the life to come, which is eternal, and that is magnificent. It's the balance of our existence, but it's about right now and having a purpose in the people you relate with, seeing them as eternal beings, um, seeing the things that you're doing, even the smallest things, is all part of an eternal significance that we have because of our risen Christ who's commissioned us in all ways. This picture of this third benefit rolls out in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The reign of Christ started when he was seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted. From there, he is calling people to himself, a, a number known only to God. And finally, when that last one that God has called, has chosen, comes, uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus returns, and he visibly brings culmination to all of it, and then it unfolds all these subjections. It all has to do with the final arrangement of things that gives God all the glory. And the beauty is, glory to God when we're in Christ will be something we thoroughly enjoy and love and find ourselves made for. Picture the Garden of Eden before the fall happened, the beautiful fellowship between God and man that was created at the first. It's that kind of satisfaction with tending the earth and living on the earth that comes from knowing our Father, 
talking with him directly, all that fellowship. But it was completely disrupted by sin, and we can only imagine what that would have been like. But now in Christ, it will be that but more. It will be, it will be better because of who we are made in Christ. We won't any longer for eternity have the ability to fall back into sin because we're still wrapped up in the person of Christ. We're our own selves, but now we have his righteousness. And we can now function in the way that God's created us for all time in fellowship with him in a way that really escapes any of our imagination and certainly outdistances my ability to explain it. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, verse 27, but when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. It's not saying he lowers himself any further as he did in the incarnation, but rather saying that the order of, the, of things will be fulfilled and the fullness of the plan of Christ's redemption will be realized to the glory of his Father in heaven. And this beautiful glorification of the triune God will benefit all who are in Christ. That's heavy stuff. It's out there. I realize it in the future, and it's difficult to grasp completely. But I think we need to hear that truth of Scripture because it will help root us and ground us. Adrian Warnock says it maybe more practically than I've been able to lay it out. He says, Christians have therefore already been changed by Jesus' resurrection. Jesus really is alive today, Warnock says. Because of this, Christians are also alive in a whole new way. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in every true Christian. God wants us not just to believe in Jesus' resurrection, but to be transformed by it and to receive the power we need to live the way we know we ought to. In other words, be unleashed by the knowledge of eternal life in the risen Christ. Um, live your life in a way that is, is unabashedly committed to Christ, zealously so, passionately so, and knowing that we can do this now with full safety because we're in Christ. It changes how you live now. This is not the greatest illustration, but I knew that I'd be, I had my foot on the gas for the last 10 minutes, which is typical usually at this last 10 minutes of any sermon that I'm preaching, just because I get excited about it. Let me slow it down and put it to you in a simpler way that I still think illustrates the point to, clo- to close. Uh, many of you are veteran flyers, um, even pilots in our midst, so this won't apply to you as much. But those who are like me who maybe fly 10 times a year, um, I'm not scared to fly. I just think about it more than I ought to think sometimes. Um, you know, before the plane takes off, um, you're supposed to have your seat uh, in the full upright position uh, with your table tray down, and uh, you're supposed to be seat belted in for takeoff, getting ready for takeoff, and you're just waiting for it to take off. Um, as the plane starts to take off, it's shaking as it goes, it lifts, and there's always this little tension in the minds of people. They don't say it out loud necessarily, although there will always be that one person who does say it out loud, but most reasonable people will be thinking, I am in a 90,000-pound 737 at this point, and it's going to take off. I mean, just think about that for a moment, 90,000 pounds. Now, if you, you fall off of a ladder at whatever weight you are, you fall fast, don't you? Well, 90,000 pounds, imagine that. So it's taking off. I mean, don't imagine it too much, but you're thinking about this. And then you realize that full capacity, as you Google it right quick, it's 150 to 170,000 pounds with everybody and all their stuff in it. It's understandable as rational beings that you might be apprehensive and a little bit tight when a plane takes off. You are the normal one if you feel that way. Um, Then it moves upright 
or upward at a sharp, shaky, and I mean shaky angle. Uh, you can hear stuff move in the overhead compartment. You can see the overhead compartments wiggling. Now, don't ever fly next to a person who's a pilot because they think that's totally fine. No, it's not fine. That's not what it should be doing, but that's what it does as you're moving upward and you're a little bit tense. Um, your ears start to pop, uh, so earbuds don't really matter, and you're not supposed to have electronic devices because they might interfere with something in the plane. They would shut it off, and then it would just drop immediately anyways, right? I'm sure you all have it on airplane mode, I'm sure. Uh, turbulence, shakiness, bumpiness as you're ascending, um, and then you reach a certain cruising altitude. Then, after all this tightness and concern, a little electronic tone sounds, and a voice comes on and says, folks, we've just hit our cruising altitude of 11,000 feet. I've turned off the seatbelt light, which means you are now free to move about the cabin. There's an ease that comes over you when that light goes off and that announcement is made. This is the way I'm going to put it to you Christians. Lots of tensions in life, lots of pressures, lots of stuff on your mind right now, but you are a Christian, and your Savior is living. You can never die in any true sense, not in an ultimate sense. The resurrection of your Savior, Jesus Christ, is like God the Father saying to his children, to us, you are free to move about this life without worry or fear. You are ultimately safe. Let's pray. Lord God, as it has been written in song, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. And as it is written in your word, if the spirit of him who raised from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. O Lord, Please embolden us to live out our eternal life in the risen Christ now and every day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us together turn in our hymnals to 286. We'll stand and sing the first three verses as the elders come to prepare the table. <laughs> 